about the small group coffee, I always say, if, if Mr. Publix does it, why should I? <laughs> right, Ina? Where's Ina? My friend Ina. Yeah, that's our motto. All right. Mr. Goldblatt announced little Joey. There's something I can't figure out. What's that, Joey? asked his Sunday school teacher. Well, according to the Bible, the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea, right? Right. And the children of Israel beat up the Philistines, right? Well, sometimes, yeah, that's right. And the children of Israel built a temple, right? Uh, yeah. Well, and the children of Israel fought the Egyptians, and the children of Israel fought the Canaanites, and the children of Israel were always doing something important, right? All that's right, too. So what's your question? Well, demanded Joey, what were all the grown-ups doing? <laughs> all right, my little funny. Okay, the founder of Promise Keepers, James Ryle, states that when he was two years old, his father was sent to prison. When he was seven, authorities placed him in an orphanage. At 19, he had a car wreck that killed a friend. He sold drugs to raise money for his legal fee, and the law caught up to him. He was arrested, charged with a felony, and sent to prison. While in prison, he accepted Christ, and after serving his sentence, he eventually went into the ministry. Years later, he sought out his father to reconcile with him. When they got together, the, convert, the conversation turned to prison life. James's father asked, which prison were you in? James told him, and his father was taken aback. I helped build that prison, he said. He had been a welder who went from place to place building penitentiaries. Pastor Wilde concluded, I was in the prison my father helped build. This account relates how a father's example can build a place for his children to live, whether good or bad. Eli had neglected his responsibilities in his own home, and his sons lived in the prison he had helped to build. His neglect in disciplining his sons and his contempt for the offices of high priest and judge which he held caused contempt for the Lord. God's judgment on Eli's family as predicted by the man of God in chapter 2 and again by God's direct revelation to Samuel in chapter 3 now begins to be fulfilled. Chapter 4 records the Israelites' misconception of their lost battle and the results of their delusionary attempts to right their wrongs. The Philistines gathered to wage war against Israel. Israel strode out confidently, but came back defeated with 4,000 fewer men. The elders understood to some extent that this was an in-house problem. Why did the Lord allow us to be defeated by the Philistines? They didn't give credit to the Philistines. They knew their success or defeat was in the hands of the Lord and no one else. So they immediately fell to their knees in repentance and sought God's word, right? Nope. Instead, they fell into ritualistic thinking. Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh. If we carry it into battle with us, it will save us from our enemies. 
The ark did symbolize God's presence among his people, and he often worked powerfully in relation to it. But the ark itself was never meant to be a guarantee of God's favor. For the elders to assume that the mere presence of the ark in battle would guarantee victory over their enemies was to abandon the word of God. In this, they were no different than the Philistines. Once the ark entered the Israelite camp, the troops cheered, and upon hearing the uproar and learning its cause, the Philistines panicked, thinking the Israelite gods had entered the camp. Both armies viewed the ark in the exact same way, as something with supernatural powers, a sort of magic object. This shows how Israel was practically heathen, taking the same views of its relation to God as the Philistines did. The Israelite elders hadn't the faintest notion that their defeat was caused by their own moral and religious apostasy. They assumed that if they had the right artifact in place, they would have victory. To think this way is to assume God can be controlled by inanimate objects made with human hands. If they brought the ark, they brought God with it. It was a kind of charm. Its very name might have made them stop and think the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. A covenant has two parties to it and promises based on conditions. If they had kept the conditions, the 4,000 corpses wouldn't have been lying stiff and rotting outside the camp. For the Israelites to do this with the Ark reveals just how badly deluded they were. They were willing to use the Ark itself in such a way that violated the very tablets of the law of God preserved inside. The ark and its contents were a witness of their alienation from God. If the ark couldn't make these men obey the very word it was supposed to preserve, what power could it possibly have over their enemies? Repentance would have brought God. Instead, they sent to Shiloh for the ark. Eli was its guardian, and he probably didn't approve of its removal, but as usual, he did nothing to stop his ungodly sons. They desecrated the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could enter and remove the ark, thinking that they were sure of God's favor. None of these men had ever looked upon the ark, and no one should have seen it then. Once a year, with blood sprinkled on its cover and through a haze of incense, the high priest might look on it when he atoned for the sins of God's chosen people. Sure enough, God was behind this. He intended to execute these rebellious sons of Eli, just as he had said, and he used the delusion of the Israelite elders to drag them into battle. It's fitting. The two men responsible for perverting the worship and teaching in Israel would die because of the ignorance and superstition produced by their own religious teachings and heinous example. Thus God returned their sins upon their own heads. The Philistines were initially frightened, but battled their fears with a really good pep talk. They knew the greatness of the Hebrew God. They had heard the stories of how he had defeated the Egyptians, but they were willing to die for their freedom and didn't want to become slaves of the Israelites. There was to be a duel between two supernatural powers, God and Dagon. Little did the Philistines know God had prepared them to bring judgment upon the Israelites. Parading into battle with their false hope in the ark, the Israelites were mown down. 
The text relates a very great slaughter of 30,000 men, along with Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. But something even worse happened, something they hadn't counted on, and that would totally shatter their little delusion. The Ark of God was captured. Eli sat waiting for news from the battle. He knew the prophecies, a messenger bringing the disastrous news of the battle. Passed right by Eli, who was sitting at the gate, and told the sad news to the city. The entire city cried out. Besides being a terrible tragedy to all of Israel, it was a greater loss to Shiloh, because the ark would never return there. In Jeremiah 7:12, the Lord says, Go to the place at Shiloh where I once put the tabernacle to honor my name. See what I did there because of all the wickedness of my people, the Israelites. Shiloh was eventually destroyed. Cries of sorrow filled the streets. Eli couldn't see what was going on as he was totally blind by this time, but he could hear. So he asked what had happened. The, messenger rep the messenger's report confirmed Eli's fear for the ark, as well as the fulfillment of the prophecy concerning his sons. When he heard that the ark had been taken, <coughs> Eli fell backward from his seat. He broke his neck and died, for he was old and very fat. <laughs> That's the scripture. <laughs> great weight and frail elderly bones aren't a great combination. However, there is a play on word on the word heavy used here. The Hebrew word kaved literally means heavy, but it is metaphorically used to imply honor, glory, and dignity. As a judge, Eli would be expected to have kaved, dignity and honor, and as um, high priest, he should have represented God's glory. But Eli had dishonored his office by perverting the sacrifices and honoring his sons above God. Instead of projecting glory and honor and being a representative of righteousness in Israel, he was a glutton promoting sin and shame by refusing to deal with his evil sons and by benefiting from their evil practices. The folly and wickedness of the sons whom he had indulged and whom he had honored above God were his ruin. His sin became the means God used to destroy him. In the face of God's judgment, he couldn't stand. Okay, we have one final event to review in this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. It concerns the wife of Phineas. This poor woman died in awful, hopeless despair. Can you imagine being married to a man like Phineas? The scripture tells us that she was almost determined her pregnancy. When she hears the news of the capture of the ark and the death of her husband and father-in-law, the stress and trauma induces labor. She gives birth but is overwhelmed physically and lay near death. She has been robbed of all joy and hope, so much so that even when she is told that she has birthed a son, she didn't answer or even pay attention. The Hebrew literally says she did not set her heart, again suggesting despair and detachment. Her last meaningful act before her death was to name her child Ichabod. 
This name is from the same Hebrew root word, kaved, and means without glory, or there is no glory. She repeats the refrain in verses 21 and 22. The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. This dominating, dominated her dying thoughts, so much so that she placed that horrible name upon her soon-to-be orphan child to bear for the rest of his life. Ladies, what happened to these Israelites on this battlefield originated with a failure in worship and teaching. Perversions in the house of God produce social decline. The same goes for us today. We fail to apply God's word to all of life, and some pastors fail to instruct Christians how to do so or even to do so. We create religious comfort zones, limit the word, and then act surprised when the enemy gains ground. We need to repent and turn to God's word to answer our questions. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture, every little bit, is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out and teaches us, us to do what is right. Eli had scorned God's glory and honored his, his own sons above God. He ended up blind physically and spiritually. He had no spiritual strength to endure. He despaired and died under the weight of his own fattened body. As we saw in our study of 2 Corinthians, Paul teaches us that Christians must do just the opposite. We are never to give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. Our present troubles are quite small and won't last very long in light of eternity. Yet they produce for us an immeasurably great glory that will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see right now. Rather, we look forward to what we have not seen, for the troubles we see will soon be over, but the joys to come will last forever. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. We should endure affliction and make sacrifices in our lives in order to glorify God, not men. Such a lifestyle prepares us for even greater glory, eternal glory, because we don't look on the outward glory of men. We live by the spiritual strength God gives within, strength that will enable us to overcome the passions of our own flesh and pride, to humble ourselves before him, to obey his word, to withstand the taunts and attitudes of sinful men, and to present our bodies as living sacrifices to him. Our Christian life is the, is the largest, most important aspect of our worship. And remaining faithful to God amidst the hostile culture is what Paul called a living sacrifice and your spiritual worship in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. We should be transformed by God's word, not conformed to worldly ways of thinking. Ladies, we have no idea when or how God intends to accomplish his purposes. It could be tomorrow or 20 years from now. It could be long after we are gone from this earth. We do, however, know for certain the standards he has called us to live by. Let's cling to the certain and leave the timing to him. We can learn to rest in his perfect will and be patient. Patience is an act of faith that never loses hope and never compromises its focus. 
Let's be faithful witnesses because a faithful witnesses puts a faithful witness, excuse me, puts the enemy on the defensive. He may still ridicule and revolt, that's his nature, but we can rest assured that God will bring his will to pass in due time. Okay, chapter five answers the question of what happened to the ark and those who took it as a spoil of war. I expect that there to be a battle cry throughout the land of Israel for all able-bodied men to gather, resolve to bring the ark back to Shiloh or die trying. What a sad testimony of the times that although there was much sorrow and consternation over the loss of the glory of Israel, there was no zeal for the Lord or courage among his people to seek to retrieve it. The Philistines, on the other hand, were doing their happy dance. They had captured the shrine of their enemy's God. Their God had prevailed over the God of the Israelites. The first thing they did was mount the ark as a trophy to their God, Dagon, in his temple in the city of Ashdod. As you probably learned in your study this week, in Canaanite mythology, Dagon is, is either the brother or son of El, who is the supreme God, and is the father of Baal. Dagon was the chief god of the Philistines, whom they believed sent rain and assured a bountiful harvest. His image had the lower body of a fish and the upper body of a man. Okay, so the victors have placed their spoils of war, the ark, beside the idol of Dagon. They go off and after celebrating some more, they go to bed. They get up the next morning and decide to go take a look at this ark that their god has won for them. They make their way to the temple, and there's Dagon, fallen with his face to the ground in front of the Ark of the Lord. Now, this should have been clue enough for these peeps, <laughs> unless Dagon has been making the habit of falling on his face, they should have noticed that his fall corresponded with the presence of the Ark, that he was prostrate before the Ark. At the very least, it should have made them wonder maybe think just a tiny little bit about what had just happened. But no, either through dullness or rebellion, they acted otherwise. They propped helpless Dagon back up on his previous exalted spot and went about their business. The next morning, the same thing happened. The idol had again fallen face down before the Ark of the Lord. This time, his head and hands had broken off and were lying in the doorway. God sent a stronger message. God not only bowed Dagon before him, but by removing the, feature, the human features, the head and the hands, he reduced the fish god to the level of the powerless creature that he was. The Philistines still didn't get a clue. Here they had clear evidence that Dagon couldn't stand before the holy God of Israel. Yet instead of falling down to worship the one true God, they instead turned to yet another superstition. Since Dagon had fallen and been broken on the threshold, they, attribute, they attributed supernatural power to the threshold. And no one who entered the temple of Dagon from that day forward would dare to step on the threshold. Instead of believing what they knew was the truth about God, they deliberately chose to believe lies. So they worshiped the things God made but not the Creator Himself, who is to be praised forever. Amen. Romans 1.25 So God began judgment. 
the Lord began to afflict the people of Ashdod and the nearby villages with plague of tumors. God moved from humbling their God to destroying him and now to inflicting the entire territory. The people finally began to get it and acknowledge the source of their trouble. We can't keep the ark of God of Israel any longer. He is against us. We will all be destroyed along with our God Dagon. Yet their reprobate minds continued suppressing the truth and their only reaction to the presence of God among them was not to repent, but to remove the presence from among them. In their minds, it was they who needed, in their minds, it wasn't they who needed to change anything. God just needed to move out. So what do you do with a gift that you don't really want after all? Well, you regift it, of course. So the Philistines sent the ark on down the road to another Philistine city, Gath. Now, these are great guys, right? They realize that the hand of God is upon them because of the ark, and they're all suffering from this horrific plague of tumors. So what do they do? They shift the burden on down the road to their neighbors. Way to show love and concern. Sure enough, Gath fared no better. So what to do? Well, send the ark up the road again, this time to Ekron. But apparently word had reached Ekron before the ark did. Bad, bad news travels fast. And the Ekronites cried out in terror. They are bringing the ark of the God of Israel here to kill us too. They summoned their leaders and begged them to send the ark back to its own country. Then, oh, wait, the continuing story of the ark carries on in chapter 6. So, cliffhanger. <laughs> You're going to have to wait a couple of weeks until the saga of the ark continues in our next lecture. All right, so how can we apply this to our lives? Well, we can and should certainly stop making excuses for idolatry. What is number one in your heart? The Philistine narrative shows us how blind and stubborn we can be in pursuing our idols and refusing the true God. Despite repeated evidence that God had bowed and crushed Dagon, the Philistines kept propping up and defending their fish god. Likewise, our fallen nature is to pursue our choice remedies, no matter how they may fail us and dishonor God. The reason that many of us aren't acknowledging the idols in our lives is due primarily to the fact that we have an incorrect definition and image of what idolatry truly is. Author Nancy Piercy says this, Scripture treats the topic of idolatry far more subtly. An idol is anything we want more than God, anything we rely on more than God, anything we look to for greater fulfillment than God. Idolatry is thus the hidden sin driving all other sins. We must be aware that our idols today can rear their heads in various forms. While we generally tend to see them as disgraceful or evil passions, it's important to recognize that idols can be good things that we've made ultimate things. A few examples which we often put our value and confidence in may include our children, spouse, how about physical attractiveness, money, job, or even our friendships. 
All of these things are not inherently evil, but they become a problem when we begin to believe that they, that they can satisfy us more than God. Our goal as a believer is to know God better and to make him known. Today, if you have made even the smallest gain in those areas, then you have fulfilled your purpose. There is nothing more important than knowing, loving, and seeking to glorify our Creator. This news should free us to know that our status, relational, social, vocational, financial, none of that matters. Our primary goal is to glorify God and to be obedient to Him. So if you've done that, you can rest in the fact that you've accomplished your purpose for the day. In America, we like to be independent, right? Rulers over our own, our own lives. We might be hesitant to uproot our idols because honestly, sin can often appear comfortable. The way to change your mind about sin is to learn about the quality and the character of God and to understand how fully and deeply you are loved. You will slowly start choosing obedience out of mutual reciprocal love. When you love someone, you will do anything to please them and never hope to hurt them. The same goes for our relationship with God. And one issue that genuinely upsets him is the fact that we constantly choose our lovers, our idols, over him. I would like to encourage us, chief to myself, to pray and ask God to reveal the idols which may have crept into our lives even the innately good things which we've elevated to a higher place than they ought to hold. Let's uproot the lies we may believe at our core and make certain that we, never are, that we are never worshiping created things over our Creator. Let's pray. Lord, we do want to bring you glory. We want our hearts to be yours alone. Give us a deeper trust, a deeper knowledge of you, a yearning for your word and its truth. Prick our hearts, God. Don't let us leave here today and go about our, our lives business as usual. Help us to put you first and keep you first. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.